I'm just going to get this out of the way right up front. Okay? Today we're talking about money. So, so if you want to leave, because <laughs> you're afraid of what I'm going to say. But, but here's the thing. When you think about money, isn't it interesting how it depends on how we talk about money, what our response is? If I was to say, I need a volunteer, I'd like to give away some money. You know what? There's hands all over the place. And so if I was to give this, I'll give this to Jimmy. Now if I ask for a volunteer, how many volunteers are there? <laughs> There's volunteers all over the place. We have one of our, our presidential candidates has caught on to this and is offering all kinds of free stuff and getting all kinds of votes for that. And that's a whole different discussion that we can have offline sometime, whether that's good or not. But money, when we're getting it, is a good thing, right? But... But when we start talking about giving money, now suddenly we start getting into territory like, I'm not so sure I want to talk about that. I'm not so sure that I should be told to give money or asked to give money. And it's really interesting because money in the church is a hard thing to talk about, but yet it's talked about over and over and over in Scripture. One of the reasons it's hard to talk about in church, I believe, is that it's been abused many times. And we have televangelists that abuse the concept of money. And, and you know, it goes way back. Even to, to the early church, there were people that were selling, selling different um, artifacts or different things they had found or blessings. For a while, there was three of the same leg bone of Peter going around. Think about that. Same leg bone. One person, three of them. Yeah, okay. Too many. And, and, and so this has been a, a history of abuse when we come to money in a church. And why is that? What does money represent to us? And I'd like to, uh, you to inter- interact a little bit. What does money represent to us? Security. Security. Prestige. Prestige. Status. Authority. Authority. Power. Opportunity. Opportunity. Okay. Opportunity for good things. Sometimes opportunity just to do what I want and to have the comfortable life that I so desire. Survival. It means eating. Eating's good. It means having a roof over your head. And so money is this topic that we come into, and I know today we come into with all kinds of preconceived ideas, all kinds of emotions. And, and it's just interesting how the Holy Spirit works because this afternoon we have our Q&A meeting for our church budget. And this was not planned. We, we've had Second Corinthians planned for, for months, actually almost a year now. And it's, I've been amazed at how the Spirit has taken each passage of Second Corinthians that we've been working through and brought it to the church at just the right time. And so today we are going to talk about money. I'm not going to skip these passages because it is valuable for us to talk about. When we think about where Paul has gone with the church at Corinth, a couple chapters ago he talked about do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? And do not touch the unclean thing. Come out from among them and be separate. And he's talking about living a separated lifestyle from the world. And then last week he talked about opening your hearts to reconciliation, to restoration, and that attachments to the world can stop. And in fact, for Paul, he was saying, your attachment to the world is stopping you from being attached to me. It's hindering that. And then just really sort of out of the blue, he comes to money, but I would argue it's not out of the blue. Because when it comes to money, money can either represent our, our moving forward with God and His plan, or can't money be an attachment to the world? 
When we, when we get tight-fisted with our money, when we grab hold of it, when it is about power, when it is about prestige, when it is about having the worldly comforts, money becomes a, a really strong indication of whether I'm unequally yoked with this world. Because it can become an idol. It, it can become something so important to us. And so Paul goes there and he uses money as an example of how to give yourself to God, of how to respond to His grace. And so we have all kinds of things that we bring into the subject, but we want to look at what God says in, in both 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. We'll look at 8 this week. In two weeks, we'll look at 9 and we'll see some of the things that Paul teaches When we think about godly living in an ungodly world, which is our theme for the whole chapter, this is key because God will often use our giving and our open hands to form us into godliness. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll be going through all 24 verses today, so we'll just move pretty quickly. Background here, about a year earlier or sometime in the year prior, Paul had already talked to the church at Corinth, and we saw that in 1 Corinthians 16. He had talked to them about joining a project, joining a financial project. The church in Jerusalem was under severe persecution. They were struggling, and they were financially in need, and, and people in the church were just struggling to eat, have a roof over their heads. And so Paul has started this project. What if the other churches joined together and helped them out? What if we worked together as a church and met each other's needs? What if, you know? And so Paul starts this project and he goes to the Gentile churches and says, what would it say to reconciliation if the Gentile churches reached out to the Jewish church and, and, and helped them and gave of their money? He's already been up through Macedonia. And if you remember the map, that's above Corinth. He's already been through there collecting money and, and talking to them. A year earlier, the church at Corinth had started. And so there's this project to meet the needs of the church to do God's work, to help each other in the church. Now, I I just need to say up front, this passage is not specifically about tithing. And I know we often teach it with tithing because the principles are key. The principles that Paul shares about money and about our view of money are, are valuable to whether we're helping each other, whether we're giving to the church, whether we're tithing. And so we'll look at some of the general principles out of this specific situation that Paul is talking about. So we want to go to to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll start with verses 1 through 5. And point 1 in your notes is grace-giving enthusiastically gives sacrificially in spite of circumstances. Grace-giving enthusiastically gives sacrificially in spite of circumstances. Let me read these five verses. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us first five verses, Paul jumps in. It's interesting. He jumps in tactfully. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given to the churches of Macedonia. And he jumps in by sharing an example of the churches where Paul is at. He's writing from Macedonia. 
And, and he's talking about, his goal is to motivate them to give, to, to have open hands with their money to be part of this. But he starts by talking about a church that's doing it well in Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. You can underline grace of God there because throughout this passage, nine times Paul refers to giving as an act of grace. And so this morning, I just want to call it grace giving. What is grace? Grace is receiving something we don't deserve, unmerited favor. We, we talk about grace as Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He gave us forgiveness of sins as an act of grace that we didn't deserve. But we, we know all kinds of acts of grace. You know, we give acts of grace to each other when we give gifts. We give acts of grace to each other when we do things that the other, for the person that the other person isn't expecting. But Paul here, the foundation of what he's saying is that we give as a response to God's generous grace. If you go away with anything this morning, go away with we give because of it's a response to God's generous act of grace, His generous grace to us. And so Paul starts there. This is an act of grace. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And 2 and 3 talks about their circumstances and that they gave through difficult circumstances. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, if you're like me, you read that and I'm like, some of those things don't go together, right? Severe test of affliction or trials, severe trials, and probably for being Christians. They're being persecuted, and we, we know this is already happening up by, in Philippi and, and Berea and some of those, those cities. Severe test of affliction, extreme poverty, and, and we have to understand Paul is using words here that really do mean extreme, really extreme, rock bottom, scraping along. I found a chart that, that a store is, an historian had done about really where the social status was in Mediterranean society. And you see that up there, and it's in your notes as well. And, and just this gives us an idea of what people were facing, especially in Macedonia. You have 40% that were below subsistence. It's the, the Burgundy graph. That means not enough to survive or daily trying to scrape together enough for food, maybe figuring out where they're going to sleep. 33% a minimal existence. Maybe I mostly get enough food, but nothing else. That's 73% of the population of the time that would be in extreme poverty. This is what the church was going through. Now, when we think of that, we think that is amazingly difficult. That church can't give. They should eat. They, they, why would they even do that? And then you have the relatively poor, 15%. Those at least had some money, but it was only relatively poor. And then between the, the last two, 12% are the upper strata. Do you get a picture of society at the time? To us, that is all kinds of excuses not to give. All kinds of reasons. But look at verse 3 or 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This is amazing. 
If you're doing, if you're doing math, there's a little formula there that the joy at what God had given them and their extreme poverty equals generosity. Doesn't make sense, right? But God's economy doesn't make sense to the world. And this is why this is godly living in, in a secular, worldly society. And what we see there is their abundance of joy at what God had done in their lives. And they were so overwhelmed at what God had given them that they couldn't help, but even in extreme poverty, being part of this, being part of helping another brother. So the question is, not only what has God given you, but how have you experienced God's grace? How many of you in this room have experienced God's grace? That's amazing. We sang amazing grace this morning. God's grace is amazing. Do we believe that? Does it affect us? Does it change how we act? For the church at Macedonia that Paul is lifting up as an example, it changed everything. And so because of God's grace, because of what he had done in their hearts, they're like, I don't care what I'm going through. I don't care the circumstances. I'm going to be generous. Jesus in Matthew 10, 8 says, freely you have received, freely give. And he ties the reception of grace and reception of God's blessings with giving. What's interesting, we go on in verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, which is okay, they gave you know, what they could, but then he goes on and says, and beyond their means, of their own accord. And the second thing under this, this point is that they gave sacrificially. This poorest of poor people said, I so love God's church. I so love what God has given me that I'm going to give and I'm going to give beyond what I'm able, beyond my means. It's interesting, Paul puts in there, of their own accord. He wants, he wants the church at Corinth to make sure I didn't force them. I, I didn't like get their, their, um, their tax returns and figure out how much they should give and take their money. They did this on their own. Now, now, does that make a difference that they did this on their own? Because it shows a heart, right? It shows a willingness. We're going to see that through the, the rest of the, the chapter. In fact, if you go on to verse 4, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And it wasn't just that they wanted to, but, but they were begging to. They gave enthusiastically. It was their choice. They pleaded to be part of it. It would be like if we came in this morning and, and there was the, a congregational vote at the beginning of the service that said, please take two offerings this morning. Please, we just really need you to take two offerings this morning. That's sort of what they did. I beg you, I know you don't think we have any funds, but please help us. Please help us help you. This is sort of like someone who's been out of work for a year going and helping someone who's been out of work for a year and a half. The rock bottom helping the church at Jerusalem who is at rock bottom. Probably not a great amount that they were able to give, but beyond their circumstances. So many times we can use circumstances as an excuse not to give. Or goals or desires. Maybe we've been out of work for a while. And we're like, you know, I, I'm barely making it, so I, I don't know that I should give. Maybe we're saving for retirement. Maybe we're saving for vacation. 
Maybe we're afraid there's going to be too many bills this month. We have all kinds of reasons. And I'm convicted by the church at Macedonia who was barely able to find food and said, please let us help. Oh, if only we were so amazed at God's grace that we demanded to help people. It's interesting. In verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part. Some of your translations say privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. And that taking part is from fellowship or koinonia, a sharing together. And the church at Macedonia really got it. They got what church should be, that it's a sharing together. As I think about that, I'm I'm reminded that we will usually find money for what's important to us. We will usually make a way for what we really want. And if what we really want is to see God's work go forward, then that's going to be top of mind. That's going to be what's on our heart. What was important to the Macedonians was God's work and God's people. And it showed in their wallets. You know, maybe the experience of being poor helped them understand. Maybe that helped them jump on the bandwagon to help. We've seen it in in the missions trips. I'm amazed that we go down to some of the poorest cities and poorest little villages, and they're the ones that just give and maybe provide a meal for the team that's a month's salary. We're like, how can you do this? Like, we want to do this. Do you know what God has given us and, and the blessing you guys are? Please let us do this. That's the heart of the Macedonians. That's seeing it as a privilege, seeing it as a way to share in God's work. A Greek philosopher of the time, Dio Chrysostom, said he, he was once clothed and fed and given shelter by a local peasant and his family after being shipwrecked near Macedonia, ironically. And he reflects on the open-handed generosity of the poor. They light a fire more promptly than the rich and guide one on the way without reluctance. And often they share what they have more readily. When will you find a rich man who will give the victim of a shipwreck his wife's or his daughter's purple gown or any article of clothing far cheaper than that, a mantle, a tunic, though he has a thousand of them, or even a cloak from one of his slaves? That man is not a believer, but he's noticing that when people don't have much and they've experienced God's grace or they've in this case they've experienced generosity they're more apt to give it to have open hands rather than tight fists how did the church do this how did how did the church at Macedonia do this that's verse 5 and this not as we expected this was a surprise to Paul but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us relationship was the key They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Love God, love others. That was the desire of their heart. And that showed as they responded to the grace of God mentioned in verse 1 that they could have overflowing joy mentioned in verse 2. They were devoted to God. Nothing else mattered. How can we be part of God's work? So the thing is, when I'm devoted to God, this is, this, is, this is a key point. When I'm devoted to God, my pocketbook is also devoted to God. I can't separate the two. And, and that's more than just money. If I'm devoted to God, every part of who I am is devoted to God, including my money, 
including my time, including my passions, my heart. But the inverse is also true. If I have a part of my life that I have not devoted to God, I have not open-handedly said, use this in any way you want, God, money, time, skills, if I have anything like that, then I am not devoted to God. You can't hold back from God and say, he's my number one. And so Paul says, this not as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That's the key. That is the key. So giving, even when there's difficulties, even when we're in financial stress, it's a visible act of giving ourselves to God. It's a visible act of relying on God. In fact, it combats greed and hoarding. If you struggle with with having a tight fist on your money, try being generous. It will change everything. I I know that Susie and I are very different. She doesn't know I'm going to talk about her this morning. Um, and, And so sometimes opportunities will come up to help a person or to help a missionary or something. And we talk and and we sort of have a game of it now because we'll come up with numbers. What do you think we should give? What do you think? Her number is always double mine. So sometimes I double it just to equal her. And then her number is still double mine. I'm like, how did that work? <laughs> and we go with her number. Because God is using her to teach me to open my hand. See, this is a convicting passage to me because, because I want to be financially responsible. I want to make sure I'm providing for my family. I want to make sure we have a retirement. I have a whole spreadsheet that outlines this whole plan. If you know me, you know. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's good to plan. I'm not saying don't do those things, but plan with an open hand. And and I need to say, okay, God, my stuff is still yours. Everything. Everything. Grace giving, giving that responds to God's grace, enthusiastically gives sacrificially in spite of circumstances. Don't let anything stop you from God's promptings to be part of his work. The question I ask myself out of this, do I give primarily out of my comfort or do I give out of severe circumstances? Do I give generously even when it hurts? It's a hard question. Paul goes on in verse 6. He's just used the church at, at Macedonia to say, don't let your circumstances stop you, whatever they may be. And, and we're all in better circumstances than the church at Macedonia was. The second thing in verses 6 and 7 he says is grace giving is a normal and essential part of our spiritual maturity. Grace giving is a normal and essential part of our spiritual maturity. Let me read these verses. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Remember, Titus had just come back from Corinth. And he had given the severe letter and he came back to Paul and said, they responded. We can reconcile. They are repenting. And so Titus is with Paul now and and Paul's telling Titus, okay, now go back and let's finish the gift. Let's finish what they promised to do. Then verse 7 is so key. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace. Also, And Paul here, is his second argument, first is give no matter your circumstances. Give sacrificially. Trust God. 
The second thing that he says is giving is part of your spiritual growth. These things he mentions in verse 7, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, these all have to do with the giftings that they were, they were chasing. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, he talked about it. And they're chasing these gifts and to have status in the church and to be mature. And he says, just as, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness or enthusiasm, in our love for you, and, and just a quick note on that, that, that's probably not a great translation in our love for you. The, the Greek's a little awkward there, but it probably means more in, in the love you have that we inspired. And because it, it, literally it's from, let me read this, make sure I get it right, from us in you love. So how do you translate that? From us in you love. And most of the scholars say, well, actually it's that our love is from us first. It inspired you, but now you're loving. And so some of your translations will say different things for that one. But if you look at the context, the context, these are spiritual disciplines, spiritual gifts in faith, knowledge, earnestness, love. And he says, don't leave out grace giving. So see that you excel in this act of grace also. See, financial giving, opening our hand, giving to, to God for his work, that is part of spiritual maturity. In fact, it's a tool that God uses to refine us. Like I said, as I've learned to, to give more and to be more open-handed, God is refining me to trust him more, right? To rely on him. He is, he is, he is breaking those bonds, those yokes with the world that money represents. Only if we are open-handed and give. See, I can't say things like, well, I'm going to teach well, and I'm, I'm going to speak well, and I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to have knowledge, I'm, I'm, I, but I'm not going to give. There's a hole there in that thinking. We can't say I'm just going to give of my time or my effort, but not my money. That, that is contrary to Scripture. God wants all of us. And I'm not up here, understand this, I'm not up here hoping to pad our budget because I am amazed at how faithful this congregation has been. But this is more than, than, this is more than what you give in the offering plate. This is how we help each other, how we encourage each other. Are we willing to use our resources open-handedly to serve each other in the body of Christ? That's the bottom line question. See, Paul here is presenting giving as a normal part of a mature walk with Christ. Just a normal part. You should, you should have faith. You should talk well and, and have speech that brings glory to God. We should have knowledge that brings glory to God, enthusiasm, love each other, and give to God's work. Because it represents a, a gratitude for what God has given. But that, that's important to understand. It's normal. When, when, when you go to work this week and halfway through the week, you might go to your boss and you might say, I want you to know I came in every day this week. And I came in when I was supposed to and I didn't leave until quitting time. And what's your boss going to do? Look at you and say, yay? No. He's going to look at you and say, okay. That's what you're supposed to do. Sometimes my kids will come to me and say, Dad, I did my chores today. 
Yeah, is there more? Is there? I mean, <laughs> yay. I mean, it is, uh, Paul is presenting this just as normal part of being a Christian. And sometimes we think of giving as this ultra-spiritual thing that we might attain to someday. No, it's what we do. We're Christians impacted by the grace of God, and so we give to each other. It's what we do. And so Paul here says, grace giving is a normal and essential part of our spiritual maturity. Can't use circumstances as an excuse. It's part of how we grow, how God refines us. The third thing, grace giving is motivated by our love for Jesus and his grace. Grace giving is motivated by our love for Jesus and his grace, verses 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And, and it's, it's really interesting because Paul is, is making it very clear, I'm not ordering you to do this. And please don't go away this morning saying, Pastor Ron is ordering to do this. That's not what, what is being taught here. Now, Paul is motivating them. He's challenging them. But he says, I'm not going to command you because when we do things that are just by command, we lose the heart. So Mother's Day is next week. And if Susie commands me, you will get me flowers, you will take me there, and you will do this. Otherwise, it will be bad for you. (laughs) That might be helpful, but when I do those things, how amazing is that? I was commanded, I was instructed to do that. Now, if I do those things and she's never asked me, does that change things for her? Yeah. See, if we only give because God has commanded us... Now, now we obey sometimes before the feelings are there. I understand that. And we obey because we should. But the ultimate goal is we obey because we love God. We obey because we've been so overwhelmed by His grace that that grace just spills out in everything we do. It even spills on my, my wallet. And so Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. There's a little bit of a dig there, in my opinion. I'm proving by the Macedonians and their enthusiasm that you're also enthused. So what's that sort of implying? You better get on the ball. But I'm not commanding you. I want you to want to do this. Not because you've been ordered. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And I would underline, highlight that in your Bibles. It's at the center of the, the chapter because it's the central point. And Paul's used the examples of the Macedonians. Now he's going to use the example of Jesus Christ. And he says, Jesus, even though he was rich, and, and he's not talking money here, but God does own the cattle on a thousand hills. But what he's talking about, he was rich in glory, living in heaven, in, in, in perfect, in perfection there, not stained in any way or not even having to deal with this fallen world. But for our sake, he became poor. And because we are fallen, because we can't save ourselves, because we are destined for hell without Jesus Christ and there's nothing we could do about it, God sent His Son 
who gave up the, voluntarily the exercise of his, his attributes, who gave up the, the glorious presence of heaven and came to this earth and became poor. And he became a man and being found in fashion of man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. And Jesus left the glory of heaven to take on one of these bodies, to be whipped and to be beaten and to be tortured and eventually killed on that cross so you and I could have salvation. So you and I, if we believe in Jesus Christ, can have eternal life and that we can experience the glory of heaven in our glorified bodies someday. Amen? That's grace. That should stir something in us because we don't deserve that. I can never earn heaven. And so Jesus became poor so I could be rich. That's the center point of this passage. Because Paul's saying, that's, that's what touches your heart. That's what says nothing on this earth is worth having tight fists over. I can give it all to God to be used by him. See, grace giving is, is to be motivated by our love for Jesus and by his grace. It's a response to what he did. He loved and so he acted. So we love and so we act. Paul's desire was that they completed this gift because of their enthusiasm of their own heart. That's my desire for Village. Is that when we give of our resources, when we give of our money, when we give of our time, whether, however that looks, it's because we're so overwhelmed by grace. What has God done for you? How will that affect others? Number four, grace giving turns desire into action. Grace giving turns desire into action. Verses 10 and 11. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be batched by your completing, by your, by your completing it out of what you have. The picture here is a year has gone by. And for whatever reason, and we, we, can, we can surmise, but for whatever reason, the church at Corinth has, has stopped collecting for this gift. They haven't finished. Now, a year ago, they were all excited. Let's do this. We're, and some of your translations say they were the first to, to jump on this. Let's do this. But they didn't complete it. We do that a lot, don't we? I do. We get all excited about a project, and then we get into the project. And it's a lot more difficult than we anticipated. And Paul's saying, let's do this. Let's finish this. See, grace giving turns desire into action. Good intentions aren't enough. Right hearts lead to right actions. If, the, if it doesn't, then there's an issue with the heart. And that's why Paul is bringing up the whole money thing. To get at the, the worldliness that is still in the, the Corinthian church. So grace giving starts as a willingness and a desire, but then it moves to action. And you see that in verse 11. There's a construction there. 
so that your readiness in desiring it, that, that could be translated just as the eager desire to help, and then out of that, the next thing is maybe matched by your completing, so also the completing of the task. And the construction there is there's this one that must lead to the other. You've got to go beyond talk. This is more than money. I, yeah, yes, if, if we start a project, we should finish it. I am amazed, by the way, at, at, at faith promise here at Village. I was telling the elders this morning, as, as, I, as I read this, I'm convicted by so much in here, but I'm also so encouraged because I see so much grace-giving here at Village. People that are just open with everything they have to whatever God's doing. And faith promise for missions is one of those things. We, we talk about it, and again, I have a spreadsheet for this too. Um, just, just smile and nod. Um, we talk about it because there's a certain amount of money that's pledged, and in most organizations, you, you count on not receiving all of that pledged money, right? But at Village, we, we have a certain amount of money that's pledged for missions, and every year we exceed that by anywhere from 20 to 40%. It's amazing, and it's a testimony to what God is doing here in your heart for God's work in the world, your heart for missions. And so when I, when I read this one, turning desire into action, I'm like, okay, you guys are doing great on this because the desire to help missions is showing in your action. We've gone beyond talk. We're invested in it. And, and really what he's talking about is investing in God's work, making it part of who we are. You know, there's a, a humorous story about a, a hen that goes to the pig and says, let's provide breakfast for the farmer. The pig has a greater investment. The hen just lays an egg. We need to be pigs. That's the quote of the morning, right? (laughs) Are we so invested in God's work that we'll give our all? That we'll give everything? Paul says you've got to turn desire into action. It means doing more than just talk. Number five, verse 12, grace giving is measured by your willingness to use whatever you have for God's work. Grace giving is measured by your willingness to use whatever you have for God's work. One of the things that I often hear is I don't have enough to help. My, my, my little portion won't help this missionary. It won't help the, the church, this church ministry, or it won't help this person who's in need. And Paul answers that. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Let me read that verse again. If the readiness is there or the enthusiasm, the excitement for it is there, if the heart is right, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. See, it's measured by our willingness, our heart, to use whatever we have for God's work. Whether it's a large amount whether it's a small amount. Really what Paul is teaching here is proportional giving. If, if you have a little, then, then give a little, but give a portion of that proportionally to what you have. If you, if you have a lot, then give a lot because it's all God's stuff. But make sure the heart is right. The dollar amount doesn't matter. God can use whatever dollar amount we give to do His work. He could even use five loaves and two fish to feed 15,000 people. He's a huge God. 
He's more interested in our heart of generosity that's responding to his grace and overflowing to each other than how many zeros we give. See, God determines the worth of the gift. God determines it. Who knows why the Corinthians had stopped, but Paul's saying, let's go. I think of the, the poor widow giving in the temple, the, the two mites. And Jesus said that she has given more than all those people that are just dumping bagfuls of money in. Because it's measured by the heart. It's measured by the willingness to use whatever for God. One of the exciting things to me about this is this means everyone can participate. This means that, that children can participate, that teens can participate in every stage of life. We, we give out of what God has given us, out of gratitude to Him, and then see what God does, does with that. Sometimes I, I, I see little notes and, and little envelopes come through, and I don't usually see giving, but sometimes um, the, the guys will give me a little note, especially from like a young child, and it'll be an envelope, and it'll have like 25 cents. And it says, because I love Jesus. That is a precious 25 cents. Because the heart is right. It's measured by our willingness to use whatever we have for God's work. There's a story of two people sitting in church for the offering. The first had a desire to give to the church and help in any way he could. If he could, he'd give $1,000. As the bag comes by, though, he only has $10, and so he puts it in. Sitting next to him is a man who has his calculator out, or his spreadsheet like me, figures his 10%, and he's deciding whether to tithe on gross or net pay, and he computes it to the penny, writes his check for 1032.19. But... If he wouldn't feel guilty about it, he'd rather give the ten. See, God sees the first man as the heavy giver because the desire was to give as much as he could. The second man was being faithful, but because his heart was, was, was bitter about that and resentful about that, that changes the gift. God measures our hearts. Now, like I said, there's sometimes I don't feel like giving and I give because God has instructed me to with the goal of getting my heart right. But the goal is to see God's grace and to give out of that. Two more points that we see in this text. Grace giving allows us to see money as a tool to share burdens and do God's work. Grace giving allows us to see money as a tool to share burdens and do God's work. Verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need and there may be fair, that there may be fairness. As, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. And Paul is clarifying a little bit of how here his point of giving sacrificially and his point of having a heart that, that uses whatever we have for God also he, he means he wasn't saying give away your house, give away everything you have. He's saying, no, it's not that you should be burdened and they should be eased, but that we should share together and sort of all be in the same place together. 
And so there's, there's a wisdom here that he says, you give sacrificially, but, but we make sure that we're giving to real needs. We make sure that it's a matter of sharing among the body of Christ. See, we aren't giving sacrificially here so the staff can have a jet. There might be some eyebrows raised at that. But we give sacrificially so the gospel can go forth and ministry can continue. It's an outward focus. How can I help in God's work? comes back to relationship. The, the, last, the last verse there, 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had much. He's quoting from Exodus sixteen eighteen. I mean, it sounds like a really good proverb, but he's quoting from Exodus sixteen eighteen, where the children of Israel were complaining about not having enough. They're complaining that God hasn't provided and it was better in Egypt. Let's go back. A little bit of selective memory there. And, and, and God through Moses says, okay, at night you'll get quail, but in the morning you'll wake up and there's going to be manna all over the ground. And take just what you need, an omer per person. And, and those that gathered little, they, they would have enough for the day. Those that gathered a lot w- with a larger family would have enough for the day. And that's what he's quoting. He, he's really referencing that God provides no matter your circumstances. That God provided for the children of Israel. I think there's more to it as well because the manna, what happens if you hoarded it? It would reek the next day. It would go bad. It would putrefy. What a great picture of any of our resources here on earth. They don't last. We, we don't get to take them with us. I know that's a, a, a funny little bumper sticker. We don't take them with us. It all putrefies in the end. So why not use it to the best of our ability for God's work? That's what Paul is referring to here. See, grace giving is not a response to our circumstances. It's a response to God's grace. It's not optional because it's part of our spiritual growth. It's not a a forced requirement, but a matter of the heart. It's something we need to complete and actually put into action. It doesn't matter on the amount. It matters that we're giving our hearts to God and being part of what He's doing. It's a joyful response to God's grace. The last section there, and most of your Bibles will put it off as a separate section, but, but I, I want to include it here so we understand why Paul is including it as, as part of this letter. Grace-giving trusts honorable, accountable leaders. Grace-giving trusts honorable, accountable leaders. There's two aspects to that, right? The one giving trusts, the one that's managing it and receiving it, needs to maintain integrity and honor and be accountable. I often hear questions like, well, what if I can't say exactly what my money is going to be used for? I like that ministry, but I don't really like that ministry. It's trusting your leaders. Well, they might misuse the funds. That deals with accountability and transparency. Let's read this. I'm going to read the whole section because Paul here is is saying... What he, what he does is he sets up a group of three men that are going to come and collect it for accountability and, and maintaining that. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but him being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. He likes you. He wants to come back. 
With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. Those are two reasons, the glory of God and to show their love for each other. So this is a man that probably the churches at Macedonia voted and appointed to go along with the delegation. Verse 20, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more, more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of God. That's the delegation he's going to send, an honorable group, a group of accountable men. And so he ends by saying, trust them. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Fulfill your promise to be part of this. There is a huge need. There's responsibilities here to trust, but there's a huge need for churches and Christian organizations to be honorable, to have integrity. There's a lot of reasons we do things we do with money here at Village. There's reasons why it's never just one person that that handles the offering and prepares the, the bank deposit. There's reasons why we as pastors aren't on the checking account. It's not that you don't trust us. Oh, no, Pastor Ron might buy the jet that he talked about on Sunday. No, we, we, we don't even want that. We want to be accountable. There's reasons why we need two signatures on checks. And I, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty, but all of that is, it's not so much business sense as saying we want to be above reproach as a church. It's why the congregation votes on the budget. It's why we have a Q&A this afternoon where anyone can come in and ask questions, where every penny we spend as a church is able to be seen where it goes. And actually, you guys vote on where it goes. Those are good things. I know sometimes we approach meetings like this, like, ah, the details of business interfering with church. It's not all that different from Paul saying, I'm sending three guys and here's their qualifications. So that way you will know we are not misusing your funds. I am so proud of Village for their commitment to transparency, honesty, and integrity, and for the grace-giving that I see all across this congregation. It's who we are. I praise God for that. May God's Word challenge us to make sure that stays who we are. Lord God, our Father, we praise You for what You've done. That when we didn't deserve it, Your grace poured on us and overflowed on us and saturated us until we could resist no longer. Thank you for your death on the cross where I should have been. Paying my penalty for the sin I committed and you didn't. Oh Lord, I owe you my life. I owe you everything. Lord, may we be overwhelmed with joy at what you've done. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.